according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're here for the purpose of growth. Join me, if you would, in Luke chapter 14. Luke 14. We can uh, participate in the common activity of turning to Luke 14. We can also participate in the common activity of turning off our cell phones or any other noise-producing devices you have in your possession. The noisiest thing this morning is probably the recording computer back there that's recording the MP3 files. <laughs> Not sure what's wrong with that. I think we had the joyous announcement on Sunday with uh, Cliff and Terry's departure and... Uh, so it begins, the very first computer that crashes the Wednesday morning and everything else is going to go wrong between now and the rapture. That's right. All right, well, we'll teach anyway. Jesus didn't have PowerPoint, didn't have MP3 recordings. Why not? Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer uh, to make sure that we are uh, filled with the Holy Spirit and humble under the authority of God's eternal truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and for the privilege and blessing that it is for us to assemble here today. Father, this is a day that our nation uh, sets aside to uh, honor our veterans and and we uh, we do so gladly father and and we're delighted to uh, appreciate the blessings recognizing ultimately that you're the source of these blessings father and we give you the the credit and glory while we continue to celebrate the freedom that our nation uh, possesses their freedoms father that we're seeing stripped away and we do have concerns father about the days ahead uh, how much longer we'll have the freedom to preach the word the whole word uh, already, even now, certain chapters and segments are off limits. And, uh, Father, well, off limits as far as the world's concerned. We're going to continue teaching, and we just thank you for your faithfulness. Uh, bless our time today. Bless it, we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Luke chapter 14, the demands of discipleship. It's a message that we've had in part already, and a message that we will have again during the crucifixion week later on in the uh, record in the Gospel of Matthew, but we'll go ahead and teach the principles here. As the crowd started to increase once again, Jesus delivered some tough talk on discipleship. And it is interesting, it is a, a partial reversal of the trend that we've been observing. In Luke 14:25. large crowds are going along with him. And that has not been the case for some amount of time now, really ever since the feeding of the 5,000, uh, the numbers have been dwindling. And uh, from the close of the Galilean ministry on into now the last Judean and Perean ministry, uh, the numbers have been quite down. Uh, this does mark a reversal of that pattern, um, but only for a short time. And you're wondering the motivation behind it, wondering what is it that's uh, driving these numbers. So he turns and says to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, uh, he cannot be my disciple. Notice he cannot be. And there's a distinction in language between what is and what can be. 
Uh, in, in other words, in terms of permission or in terms of uh, standing. And that's why I draw a distinction here under point two. I think the language is different and there is a significance to the language. Because in John 8, we have a qualification for true discipleship. That's in John 8:31. Uh, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. Again, that's John 8:31. Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him talking to believers, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And this is an absolute statement giving one qualification for discipleship, and that is meno, abiding in the word of God, living in the word of God, not just popping in for an occasional visit, (laughs) but actually living there, dwelling in the truth. That is one qualification given for true discipleship. Back in Luke 14, I'm looking at these five expectations of discipleship that are detailed. Five expectations of discipleship. And I think the, uh, that there's not a contradiction of, of the one requirement from John 8. I think it complements it very well in these five expectations. Um, in other words, abiding in the word is going to produce these five results. These five expectations will be characteristic of someone who is abiding in the word and someone who does not fulfill these expectations. It's not really a disqualification from discipleship. It's really symptomatic that they are not abiding in the word, which is a disqualification from discipleship. Does that make sense? We still have one qualification to be a disciple, and that is to abide in the word of God. Now. These five expectations are detailed in subpoints A through E, and we covered three of them last week. The first of which is listed here in terms of the language of hating. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. There's two points that come out of that one verse. Did I break it down into two? I left it with one. Okay, one, one overall point. Temporal life living. This was a point of study from last week. Temporal life living. That includes family life, your earthly family, but it also includes your very personal life. Temporal life living must be placed in absolute context against spiritual life living. You want to understand you have temporal life on the one hand, you got spiritual life on the other hand. And when they come into conflict, then your priority value system will demonstrate whether you're a disciple or not. Temporal life living must be placed in absolute context against spiritual life living. And these are the absolute contrasts that are drawn when Scripture will use what I call language of extreme. Scripture will use extreme language, in other words, uh, hyperbole in some respects, to communicate the priorities of one contrasted with the other. It's like the language of as far as the heavens are from the earth or as far as the east is from the west. You're using the language of extreme to communicate that these are opposite ends of a spectrum. And such as you could even employ the language of love and hate to describe them. All right. Don't uh, don't lose the reality, though, in the metaphor and don't lose the uh, the language of what's being here as an excuse uh, or take it the wrong way. In other words, the language to say, well, uh, I'm supposed to hate my mother. Okay. And what's the application on that? What's the doctrinal application for hating my mother? Since, you know, we taught this last week and, and she came back this week again, you know, so 
<laughs> obviously the metaphor must have made sense. <laughs> right? How do you hate your mother when, um, well, you can illustrate this in a lot of different ways. But understand, hating your mother or your father or your wife and your children and all the relationships that are there in Luke fourteen twenty six, that you have to make sense out of that passage as it relates to other passages that, for example, tell you to honor your father and mother, right? Passages that tell you to love your wife as Christ loved the church, see? So don't just take one passage in isolation and build an entire concept or doctrine out of it or some kind of application that I have to be a a mother hater, a wife hater, a children hater, and so forth. See, then you're violating the text. No scripture is of its own private interpretation. All scripture has to agree with scripture because God's a God of truth. And you can't take one passage and pit it against another passage and view them as a conflict, saying that one's true and the other's false, because that's a dangerous game right there. All scripture is true. All scripture is God read them profitable. So you can't simply pick and choose the verses you like based on your theology and then ignore the verses you don't like and say, well, it's not true. Uh, all scripture is true. So in any event, we do our best at harmonizing the scriptures, particularly applying the issue of hatred when you understand that it's a rhetorical device. It is the language of extreme that is designed to show a contrast between two alternate systems in other words spiritual life and temporal life now do they have to always come into conflict you might be very blessed in the fact that you have uh, an earthly mother who is also a spiritual sister in christ wow how about that all right so you're not those two realms are not in a hostility they're not in a conflict they're not in a tension and so as such you're not forced to come into a love-hate uh, contrast where you have to choose your spiritual walk to the exclusion of the temporal family. You understand what I'm saying? There's the blessing there. In other words, sometimes we say when push comes to shove, what gets pushed and what gets shoved, right? How do you prioritize and how do you remain faithful to the things of the Lord? See, and if uh, if that tension does not exist, if the push never comes to shove because uh, the temporal life is is like minded with spiritual life, well, then it's grace upon grace. You have temporal special blessings in time to go along with the special blessings in eternity. In any event, temporal life living must be placed in an absolute context. This includes even his own life, even his own life, your own livelihood, your own way of living, your own career, your own um, uh, temporal life basis by which you make an income, see. And uh, is God going to take care of you? You say, well, I've got to eat. I've got to make a living. Well, your particular career is a detriment to your spiritual walk. So you're at that moment then, aren't you? Push has come to shove. What gets pushed? What gets shoved? And you've got to decide, you know what? Maybe I've got to find another line of work. I've got to find something that's not in hostility and it's not in conflict with my spiritual life priorities. All right. It was a, it was a way of living uh, prior to getting saved. I, my conscience didn't have a problem with it because, you know, it was cosmos. That's the way I used to live. It's the way I used to think. But now that I'm born again, I start to evaluate my uh, business practices, start to evaluate my uh, the places I hang out, the things I do. And, and I start to realize more and more has to be adjusted. Because it's not compatible with my new walk in Christ. Now, is that legalism? Not for a minute. It's not under law. It's not a have to. 
It's a want to under grace, recognizing the grace provisions that are supplied. And my desire, I want to live a life that's pleasing to Jesus Christ. I want to live a life that's consistent with the calling with which I've been called. That's not legalism at all. Huge difference. All right, that's our first expectation of discipleship. The second expectation, discipleship demands total obedience. Verse 27, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Again, this is language of extreme, but it does represent total obedience. God will have expectations of you. Are you going to obey? And at what point is it too inconvenient and you draw a line in the sand and say, well, I'm not going to I'm not going to do that. See, what if he demands your physical death? What if he demands that you um, lay down your life as a witness and testimony and martyrdom for Jesus Christ? Are you willing to pay that price? It demands total obedience. We cannot draw a line on the sand and fix a point beyond which we will not cross. Say, well, I'm, I'm willing to be a part of a church just so long as the expectations are pretty low. That's why larger ministries get to be pretty popular because you can blend in and disappear and remain anonymous and no one expects a whole lot of you. You just kind of fit in with the crowd and, and you, you, you sneak in with the hordes and you sneak out with the hordes and there's not a lot of expectations. Hmm. In a small ministry, then it sticks out. There's too many needs, and we find, uh, you know, the opportunity to approach you and say, "Hey, how about service in this realm? How about service in that realm?" There's, there's needs. There's things to be done. Can't be anonymous in a smaller ministry. In any event, we looked at those verses there as well. Now, as we go through each of these, recognize that failure to do these is uh, not a disqualification from being a disciple. I would put forth that failure to do any of these is actually symptomatic of the fact that you have stopped abiding in the Word, and so already from that point, you're not a disciple anyway. You're not a disciple anyway. Why? Because you have stopped abiding in the Word of God. So uh, if your temporal life and spiritual life are out of uh, whack, if you have failed in keeping the right perspective there, uh, is that a disqualification from being a disciple? Or is it really more symptomatic of the fact that the reason why they're out of kilt is because you're not occupying in the Word of God the way you should be? And the moment you've stopped occupying in the Word of God, where are you? You're not a disciple anymore. Same thing with obedience and drawing a line in the sand. Same thing with counting the cost. Discipleship carries a price to calculate. Discipleship carries a price to calculate as a project that demands completion. The metaphor here is a man that's building a tower. Which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost? And this is an expectation. It's not a qualification for discipleship, but it is an expectation that if you are a disciple, if you are abiding in the Word, a disciple of Jesus Christ, then you will consider the cost. And you will gladly consider the cost. Every single day is a consideration of the cost. And as a sacrifice in love, it's a consideration to say, yes, today I'm going to pay that price once again. Every single day I'm considering the cost because I consider the alternative and it's unthinkable. <laughs> right? The alternative to paying the price of discipleship is unthinkable. Far worse than earthly scorn. You know, uh, when he's laid a foundation, is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him. They begin to ridicule him. Well, there's worse than earthly ridicule. 
There's the heavenly ridicule, because who's observing our Christian walk? The angels in the heavenly places, principalities and powers. We are a testimony to the manifold grace of God to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. See, if you're not familiar with that, Ephesians chapter 3 will give you all you need to know in, uh, let me grab that real quick so I don't misquote it. And uh, that we are on display. We are a manifestation to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Ephesians 3.10 Talking about the administration or dispensation of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now Now, in the church, not in Israel before the church, not in Gentiles before Israel, not in the angels before Gentiles, this is the stewardship where maximum manifold wisdom is on display. The manifold wisdom of of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This is the uh, pinnacle of God's argument, the key to his legal case that he's making. This is the, in a sense, it's the closing arguments, although he's got additional testimony to offer in the tribulation of the millennial kingdom. But this is the, the um, what's the old Latin term, the sine qua non, the, the, the pure essence of God's testimony from Alpha to Omega. It's a testimony of grace, and the church is the sine qua non, the pinnacle. The absolute essential pinnacle of God's grace is our stewardship right here, right now. And the angels are watching. So as I go back to Luke 14, I think about those that are observing and ridiculing and laughing. You know, this man began to build, was not able to finish. Well, that's a metaphor. That's a metaphor for earthly folks laughing at an earthly guy building an earthly temple. But what's the reality behind this metaphor? Disciples. Believers walking in the light, these crowds that are following after Jesus, and he's got no time for that. He's three months now from the cross, and he has no time for a bunch of phonies. See, you've got to count the cost. You are expected to count the cost. And each day you wake up, you thank the Lord that he's given you one more day you didn't earn or deserve, and say, all right, there's a price to pay. I'm going to pay it today, and I'm going to glorify Jesus Christ with every thought, word, and deed, anything he wants me to do. It's a fun doctrine, and if we had more time, we'd spend some time on the vocabulary there, calculations, and what does it mean to calculate? It's only used twice. It's only used here, and it's used in Revelation 13, where those with insight in the, in the tribulation are going to be able to calculate the number of the beast. They're going to be able to calculate the 666 or the 616, depending on which manuscripts you prefer in that difficult passage. Um, you know, we spent 2,000 years trying to figure out 666, and they'll probably find out that it's really 616 as a text variant and different things. But we won't figure that out anyway. We're going to be gone. We're going to be in glory. We're going to be at a wedding supper. We're going to be introduced to our Father. We're going to have the intimacy of our honeymoon. And uh, we aren't going to give two hoots about 666 or 616 or anything like that. This is the much more important calculation. Because this is a calculation that we're to do every single day. Wake up each morning and do the calculus. And say, you know what? There's a price to pay. And any price we pay is nothing. Nothing. Say, you know what? Because what was the price he paid on Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD? So, 
you know, with, with that as a context for your economy, uh, as a scale of, of payments, then we wake up and say anything. Here I am, send me whatever he wants me to pay today. I'm going to consider the cost and I'm going to pay it because of what he accomplished. For, our fourth expectation. Discipleship involves warfare against greater numbers. Discipleship involves warfare against greater numbers. This is verses 31 and 32 of our text in Luke 14. He goes on, Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Now, if you've only got 10,000 and the, the enemy approaching you has 20,000, then you've got some calculations to figure out. <laughs> you better figure out how it is that your force of 10,000 can defeat their force of 20,000. All right, and it's possible, depending on how you're armed and how they're armed, depending on how, how the ground is situated, if you can choose the higher ground over the lower ground, if you have defensive ramparts that can be raised up, if you're behind walls, even better. Um, it's entirely possible. In fact, the Romans uh, really developed uh, the, uh, the, the, the unbelievable for the ancient world, for warfare in the ancient world, the Romans were unbelievable in their engineering and their defensive fortifications. And if they got dug in and entrenched into their own defensive fortification, a single legion could withstand 10 times, 20 times their number. And it didn't matter what the numbers were that were coming at them. Julius Caesar felt if he had, if he had six legions, there was not, uh, you could have a billion soldiers against you. He didn't care. That with, uh, with the legions equipped properly, trained pro properly, and in defensive fortifications, it did not matter. The sheer numbers were irrelevant. And he could go up against 100,000 Gauls, 100,000 Germans, 200,000 Germans. didn't matter, see. Because just the bulk numbers... <laughs> sometimes work against you because then the other side has to figure out the logistics of how to get them lined up properly and get them suited, get them fed, get them armored, get them trained, get them. And in, in a lot of cases, they were so disorganized, they had too many people and you could only bring a certain number to bear. There was only a certain, if your, if your defense is, is, is locked in at a certain point, then there's only a maximum number of soldiers that can get channeled into that, into that point at any one time different things well don't get me going i'll stay here till noon talking about julius caesar and and uh the tactics of warfare the point back in this passage though you have to consider the cost not an, not in this it's not an economic cost it's a military cost it is the tactical value of whether you're going to win or you're going to lose see because if it's not winnable if it's not winnable then perhaps there's other alternatives <laughs> like selling out, like begging for mercy, like uh, finding out what cash payments are going to be because the other side, they got to count the cost too. And they got to figure, okay, if we're going to kill you, it's going to cost us a certain number of lives. It's going to cost us a certain amount of money. It's going to cost us a certain amount of time. And it may not be worth it to them. If you can pay them off, then they may, they have other fish to fry. They've got other concerns in other areas, other territories, things of that nature. And so, again, verse 31, when, a, when he sets, what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends delegation and asks for terms of peace. What are the terms? 
What are the terms? What do we have to pay you to keep you from coming and killing us? <laughs> right? Very common. Very common in the ancient world. So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up. All, well, we'll get to that in a moment. Give up all his own possessions. That's total surrender. But let's keep it with verses 31 and 32 at this point. Asking for terms. Asking for terms. Now, as I said, in terms of paying the price, we wake up every day and we pay the price. This is back up under point C again. Um, calculating the project for completion to, to finish our tower, to finish our construction project. You know, it's, it's, uh, the alternative is unthinkable. We wake up every day, consider the cost, and pay it day by day by day because not paying it is unthinkable. Likewise, now in point D, the alternative is unthinkable. Warfare against greater numbers is unthinkable. The idea of surrender is unthinkable. The idea of asking for terms is unthinkable. Because if we're going to surrender in our soldier function, the angelic conflict, who are we surrendering to and what terms is he going to give us? The devil? The world? The flesh? We can surrender to one or all. And if you're a true disciple abiding in the Word of God, surrender is unthinkable. Just like because you're considering the price that was paid. Jesus didn't surrender. Why would I? He conquered the forces of darkness. He triumphed over the principalities and powers. He made a public display over them, having disarmed them at the cross. And now I'm going to surrender to an unarmed foe. Well, first, I'm going to rearm them with my own carnality. I'm going to rearm them with my own, I'm taking my own armor off. No. The idea of sitting down or sending a delegation and asking for terms of peace. That's not an option for a true disciple. You are expected to consider the cost. And if you are outnumbered two to one, you're not begging for terms. If you're outnumbered 20 to 1, you're not asking for terms. If you're a true disciple, then you are where your commander wants you to be. And if he wants you to be outnumbered 2 to 1, 10 to 1, 20 to 1, well, thank you, Lord. This is my assignment. And it's not a, a surrender is not an option because victory is the consequence of being obedient to Jesus Christ. You understand that? We win every battle. If you're obedient to Jesus Christ. Now, if you defy orders and surrender and run and panic, well, then, yeah, you're going to lose a few battles every time. But if you're in fellowship, see, this is like uh, Elisha and his servant. The servant was thinking they're surrounded. There's no way out. The Assyrians have us surrounded. The Arameans have us surrounded. And uh, Elisha said, open your eyes. We have them surrounded. You don't understand. There's fiery chariots surrounding these guys. We're going to win. And the servant had no clue. Why? Because he was earthly minded. All he could do was look at the numbers involved in, in humanity. It involves warfare against greater numbers. And, and, you know, let's be honest about it. We will always be outnumbered. The gate is narrow that leads to life, and few there are that find it. But broad is the path that leads to destruction, and many there are that go there too. You know that. True, regenerate humanity is always going to be in the minority. And then I think even among regenerate humanity, true disciples are a minority. They're a minority of a minority, right? <laughs> you ever think about that? 
seems to be a lot of talk these days about minority rights and minority this and minority that. Let's talk about the real minority in this world. Not only do we have it here, but Proverbs 20 and 18. I like Proverbs 20 and 18. Proverbs. Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs. Prepare plans by consultation and make war by wise guidance. It's a principle of wisdom. It's perfectly true in temporal life, but bring it into Luke 14 and place it into spiritual life. And understand that to engage in this battle, being outnumbered two to one or worse, you're just going to wing it? Say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm suited up in my armor. I got my sword. I'm just going to go running on out there. No. You know, the individual armament, the panoply of Ephesians 6 is one thing, but this is a text that's actually talking about uh, large group formations. You've got 10,000 men under your command. How are you going to deploy them? What are you arming them with? How are you going to position them? Who are you holding in reserve? Who has the center? Who has the left? Who has the right? Ever give that any thought? Not just individual believer in his armor out there killing 20,000 enemy. So, prepare plans by consultation. Think that's anything like Bible class? (laughs) All right. Make war by wise guidance, cooperating in your part in the body of Christ. Who's going to provide the guidance? Obviously, you get all your uh, tactical wisdom from headquarters. In any event. It involves warfare against greater numbers. We need to recognize that we are a part of an overall struggle. We have simply one facet, one component. We have one part of the battlefront here at Austin Bible Church, and we need to hold our position on the wall. We need to be obedient to what Jesus Christ directs us to do in every skirmish, in every engagement, because every single engagement is going to be different. The terrain's different. The time of day is different. The weather's different. The uh, uh, physical fitness of the troops are different. Your, uh, your uh, resources are different. Every battle is unique. That's why we need to be constantly aware and take the right counsel and be prepared. Discipleship involves warfare against greater numbers. Finally, discipleship entails total surrender of ownership rights. You own nothing. And what you think you own, God can take it away tomorrow and He's blessed for it. That's the lesson of Job. I own nothing. Not even myself. God owns me. I was bought with a price. I am not my own. Discipleship entails total surrender of ownership rights. It's it's the fifth and really the worst, the hardest, the, the most extreme expectation of a disciple. It's a total surrender of ownership rights. So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Now, you may not be asked to do that literally. God may not require you to lose your nice home or your nice clothes or your, uh, your standard of living or your income or the food you eat. Or, or he might. He might. 2010 is quickly upon us. It might be next year God calls you to Mozambique. Ever heard of that? I don't even know where that is, do you? Linty does. That's, 
neighboring South Africa down there. And, yeah. All right. <laughs> I said, well, God wouldn't ask me to do that because he knows uh, God won't test me beyond that which I'm able to bear. And he knows I can't bear the loss of my nice house or my nice clothes or my income or my, well, maybe you can bear it. You don't know you can bear it. Or maybe there's a volitional test at work that you're not ready to face yet. Do you love me more than these? That's the question. And what is it you're willing to surrender? What is it you're not willing to surrender? If you maintain an ownership right uh, over something and you're not willing to lose it or give it up, that's idolatry. You have just placed your non-negotiable, I will not give this up item. You just made an idol out of it. See, whatever it is, if you can't let go of it, it's an idol. What are you devoted to? Uh, it's going to come up again, not only here in Luke 14, but it comes up again in Luke 18. It's not the only time he teaches this. In fact, I think he's going to teach it more and more frequently as the uh, cross approaches. But in Luke 18:22, here's the ruler saying, uh, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, Well, you know the commandments. And the guy says, yep, I'm fully qualified. I've earned it. <laughs> I'm a good guy. I'm a good person. I've encountered folks like this. They, they think they're okay. They're all right. They're going to go to heaven. They've done good things. All these things I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said, well, one thing left. One thing you still lack. You're almost there. <laughs> and that's not strictly speaking true, but it is a rhetorical device. He's using it. Jesus is communicating, saying, well, you just got one more thing left to go. Go and sell all you, that you possess, distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. And when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Sad knowing that it was something being asked of him he could not do. He could not let go. When he, um, and so you have it there in verses 22 and 23. And then Peter starts to grumble down later in verses 28 through 30. Peter said, Behold, we've left our own homes and followed you. And he said, well, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brother or parent or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. What is it you're not willing to let go of? Paul uh, details this in Philippians 3, 7 and 8, 2 Timothy 4, 10. What is it you're not willing to let go of? I ask myself that. Maybe it's a thing. Maybe it's uh, money. Maybe it's a person. See. Hmm. Spouse or family member or church member, or what have you. Paul runs through his credentials here in Philippians chapter 3, and he has more going for him than you and I will ever have as far as his education and his training and his preparation and and all of that. And uh, Pharisee of the Pharisees, we're told here, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. He was advancing beyond many, even of his contemporaries. Then he says in verse 7, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Anything that you and I would have on the plus side of our ledger, right, if we have assets and liabilities and we'd list all the things going for us and these are all our assets, 
Man, Paul had a long list. And what did he do? He took that whole long list of everything going for him and he shoved it over into the liability column. And he says, that's all just loss. For the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Whatever you're holding on to is diminishing from the glory of Jesus Christ. And Paul had to learn this lesson, had to learn it the hard way. <coughs> I wonder sometimes if this uh, even includes his wife at whatever point. I think Paul was married. To be a voting member of the Sanhedrin, you had to be married. <coughs> and if his uh, salvation event cost him his marriage too, we don't know. Traditionally, he's thought of as being widowed because uh, typically there's a uh, little bit of a Protestant legalist idea against divorce. So they say, well, no, he couldn't have been divorced. He was the Apostle Paul. He must have been widowed or he was never married at all. In spite of everything we know that he couldn't have cast a vote had he not been a married man in, uh, among the Pharisees. But there it is. Uh, and then 2 Timothy 4.10. We're in a Timothy series at the moment. Chapter 4. So this ties in well with where we are on Sundays. Paul wants Timothy to arrive in Rome if he can, as quickly as he can, hopefully before uh, he loses his head. The fellowship will be tougher if he doesn't get there until after he loses his head. So he says, Make every effort to come to me soon for Demas, having loved this present world. There's the example. Not willing to let it go. Having loved this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. But loving this present world, what is it called when we have friendship with this world? It's hostility towards God. You're losing your perspective. You're failing back up in the point A, the temporal life living, placed in contrast in perspective with spiritual life living. All right, so these are our five expectations. Temporal life living placed in the absolute context against spiritual life living. Uh, total obedience. No line in the sand. Uh, a price to calculate. A warfare to fight against greater numbers. And total surrender of ownership rights. Five expectations of disciples. And if you find in those five areas and expectations there's things that you're struggling with, go back to John 8 and evaluate your abiding status. Are you truly abiding in the Word of God? Dwelling, abiding, living constantly, daily. Because at whatever extent that abiding is diminished, these expectations are going to be harmed for it. Alright, the last two verses then. Saltiness. Meeting the five expectations of discipleship results in operational saltiness. You want to be salty? Yes, you do. You say, well, I don't know yet. You haven't explained it. I'm not sure. Well, I'll explain it here in a moment, so you're excused for not knowing. But yes, you want to be salty. If you lose your saltiness, then you are unsalty salt, which is a self-contradictory absurdity to be unsalty salt. And uh, you're useless at that point. You're not even worth a manure pile at that point. 
All right, so yes, you want to be salty. We want to be salty. And what produces the saltiness? This passage takes us immediately through these expectations and then produces saltiness as a conclusion. So what do we conclude from that? That meeting the five expectations of discipleship results in operational saltiness. If you're a believer abiding in the Word as a true disciple and you're meeting all five of these expectations, then not only are you bearing fruit for all eternity, not only are you glorifying Jesus Christ, not only are you growing in grace and knowledge for all eternity, but on top of all that, you are a salt and light blessing by association to your neighborhood, community, state, nation, to this world itself. I find it interesting. If Lot and Mrs. Lot had been more salt and light in their community, you wonder. <laughs> she wouldn't have become the pillar of salt, would she? That she should have been already. I think there's a lot of doctrine that goes into that one chapter right there. But uh, Meeting these five expectations of discipleship. What does it say? Verse said, therefore salt is good. <laughs> what do you mean, therefore salt is good? Was there salt anywhere in these verses? <laughs> you know? All right, hate my mom, hate my dad, uh, carry my cross, build a tower, go to war, give up everything. Therefore, salt is good. Where did that come from? Okay, Understand, Jesus is teaching this metaphor and teaching this principle, the salt principle. He's, he's taught it before. He taught it in the Sermon on the Mount. You are the salt of the earth. You are the uh, light of the world. The benefits of salt and light that we have, the preserving influence we have in this world. If there had been ten righteous in Sodom, that wicked city would still be there. So then, or therefore, salt is good. But if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? How do you season salt? Salt is a seasoning, <laughs> right? How do you, I mean, if it's useless, if it's tasteless, if the salt has lost its, uh, its flavor, then what are you going to do? You can't recharge it. It's not like a rechargeable battery. You chunk it and you get other salt, better salt. Better seasonings. You have to re-season the meal with something else because this, this stuff isn't going to do any good. In fact, you can't even use it in the manure pile. That's how bad it is. That's verse 35. It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, we want to be salty. As I said, this has been taught before back in Matthew chapter 5. Early in the Galilean ministry when he taught the Sermon on the Mount. This is going to be a principle for application in the millennial kingdom. Israel will be the steward once again, and the Jewish people will be salt and light to the Gentile nations for the entire thousand-year reign. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by man trampled underfoot by man you can make it a footpath you can uh you know uh, a lot of times uh sowing a uh, field with salt was designed to prevent crops from growing at that point when it was sown ex uh, excessively you could kill the uh make the the soil so uh, uh with a high salt value where it wouldn't produce vegetable uh, uh growth see 
different legends about different cities and lands that were sown after they were conquered so that they couldn't uh, rebuild the land or they couldn't repopulate the, the territory. Um, so it's not good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by man. Make a footpath out of it, as it were. Something to be trampled on. Leviticus 2.13, back in the Old Testament. See, this would have really struck a chord among the uh, Jewish audience that received this message. Israel is going to understand their role as salt and light. You know, every sacrifice was to also be seasoned with salt. You got the grain offerings in Leviticus 2.11. No grain offering which you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall not offer up and smoke any leaven or any honey as an offering by fire to the Lord. Uh, leaven, of course, is sin, not acceptable in God's sight. Honey is natural sweetness, not acceptable in God's sight. You try to impress God with how naturally sweet you are. He doesn't care. You're not impressing him. All our righteousness is a filthy rag anyway. As an offering of first fruits, you shall bring them to the Lord, but they shall not ascend for a soothing aroma on the altar. Every grain offering of yours, moreover, you shall season with salt. You shall season with salt the grain offering and you would you could bake it in different ways and wave it in different loaves, but season it with salt so that the salt of the covenant of your God shall not be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offering, you shall also offer salt. Salt was a commodity in the ancient world. Uh, the legions, the Roman legions would pay their troops with a mixture of cash, the, the, the silver cash, as well as salt. A certain portion of salt was a part of their... Um, campaign booty all right meeting these five expectations results in operational saltiness faith hope and love are what we call operational functions in the christian way of life grace is the seasoning function called here salt people ask why isn't grace part of the faith hope and love formula in the in the new testament i believe it's because of this Faith, hope, and love are operational functions of the Christian way of life. How come grace isn't a fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, meekness. I mean, grace is so important. Why is grace not a fruit of the Spirit? Why is grace not an operational function like faith, hope, and love? And I believe it's the seasoning that goes into everything else. Like every grain offering was to be seasoned with salt. We're told in Colossians 4, 6, every verbal ministry we have is to be seasoned with salt. It's the seasoning function. And so uh, I'm looking forward in future studies to be able to distinguish between an operational function and a seasoning function. Because I think that every operational function is to be seasoned with grace. And if we're walking in grace, then we're applying salt in the spiritual application of the Christian way of life. The season, seasoning of salt in Colossians 4.6. Some of you were with us, or most of you were with us in 1 Corinthians when we were in chapter 13 and taught the operational functions of faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. And we want to operate in, in uh, faith in all that we do. We want to operate in hope in all that we do. I think as a baby believer, we learn how to operate by faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. As an adolescent believer, we start to use the operational function of hope where we have a, an expectation of the rapture. We know our place in the dispensational scheme. We're looking forward to second advent. We're looking forward to the future with confidence, not with the fear that this lost world is 
you know, man, people are crazy these days. You know, with the economy and inflation and the the, the deficit and the, the, the president and all kinds of stuff. And they're just pulling their hair out thinking, oh my goodness, terrible days are in front of us. But use the operational function of hope and relax about it. Jesus Christ still controls history. I know how this story ends. There might be some unpleasant chapters along the way, but he'll take care of that too. So if a babe learns how to walk by faith and an adolescent learns how to operate in hope, it's the mature believer that's able to apply agape love in every circumstance. Walk in love. So these are the operational functions. But all of them are to be seasoned with salt. All of them are to be seasoned with grace. Grace, you learn grace the day that saves you because you got saved by grace. And you never depart from grace. From baby to adolescent to mature, you are always, always, always operating on a grace basis. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders. Colossians 4, 5. See, this is a part of how we have our priestly ministry towards God, but then we have our ambassadorial function towards man. And how is it that we are salt and light in our community? How is it that we have impact in our county, in our state, in our country? Conduct yourself with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you, ought, how you should respond to each person. This is our salt and light impact in the community with unbelievers and neighbors and friends and whoever else may care to ask. And this, uh, which I find to be interesting because it may not be, strictly speaking, it may not be an evangelizing opportunity. It may be something entirely secular, something entirely temporal, earthly stuff. But you have a the gray seasoning of salt so that you're not destroying your witness before the gospel hearing can be given. See, Grace is a seasoning function, the season of salt. And we want to understand how this works. I, to me, the uh, worst thing in the world is to have an ungracious believer. An ungracious believer who is known for that reputation. In, in his community, among his friends, among his associates, among his co-workers. And think how tragic it is when that becomes your reputation and then when a spiritual conversation does come up and you try to then take center stage and say, oh, listen here, i got all the doctrine. I can outline this for you. I'll tell you all about We'll outline the grace eternal plan of the ages. We'll show you the salvation by grace and we'll talk about all this other stuff. <laughs> Why would they want to listen to you? Because for the last week, month, six months, year, five years, you have demonstrated no grace whatsoever in this lost and dying world. So the testimony is gone before you can even think about starting it. So uh, you will know how you should respond to each person. Yes, we're to be ready to give an account to any who might ask. But part of that readiness is maintaining the grace reputation so that they do ask. Or that when they ask, they care about what you have to say. As far as that goes, I had a sergeant one time in the army told me I was a whiner. And he was right. And it hurt. I mean, it hurt first of all. He didn't use the word whiner. There was stronger army language. But he, um, and he was right. That's what hurt the most. You know, I mean, it hurt when he said it, but then it hurt twice as hard when I realized, you know what, I, yeah. 
then think, well, wait a minute, what kind of testimony do you have at that point? You know, in the workplace, and it doesn't matter what, you know, military, civilian, doesn't matter. You got, uh, like we had 20 officers on, our, on my last shift, 20 officers at the, at the jail on, on my last shift. And uh, out of those 20 officers, who were the, who were the three biggest whiners? Who were the three biggest grumblers? Who were the three biggest slackers? The ones that you really couldn't depend on. Just ask yourself a rhetorical question. And then ask, who are your three most dependable workers? Most reliable, most dependable, most trustworthy. Never complain, always there, always helpful. And just evaluate it. Because the believers under doctrine ought to be the tops of the chart in every category. If they are a true disciple, if they're fulfilling the five discipleship expectations, then they will be salt and light in their workplace. And there will never be any doubt. You just know right off of the bat, we've got a problem. We need, we need something done. We know who to call on. We know who's reliable. We know who will drop everything. We know who will be there. And that's the value of being salt and light. Finally, the equivalent of tastelessness is the Greek word moraino, M-O-R-A-I-N-O. Moraino is the act of becoming a moron, the act of becoming a moros or a moron in the neuter, but moraino, M-O, that's the long O, the omega. M-O-R-A-I-N-O. Both the O's in that verse, in that word, are omegas. Number 3471 is the strongest concordance number. And if it's not being used of salt, it's being used of people. And when it's being used of people, it's a, uh, it's a foolish word. It's a word for becoming foolish, for being made a fool. And if you think about it, that's what you are when you become tasteless, when you abandon your salt opportunities. It's just foolish. It is foolish to abandon your salt opportunities, your light opportunities. Abandoning discipleship expectations equals abandoning grace. When you abandon grace, I don't care, you're an idiot. You're a moros, an idiotes. You're a fool. You're abandoning grace? Are you kidding me? Man, what are you going to go back to human effort? You're going to go to law? Is that what saved you? No. So why are you going to go back to that now in your Christian walk? Yeah, just go back to, read, read the book of Galatians, come back and talk to me. <laughs> right? And, uh, and if you still haven't changed your mind yet, I'll do more name calling. How about that? Because I'm not the one doing the name calling. Scripture does the name calling. Abandoning discipleship expectations equals abandoning grace equals abandoning salt. It's a desalinization process, which is not good. Because how do you desalinate salt? Salt is salt in any event. But it can be corrupted and it can lose its savor. And uh, then it's not good for anything. And that's what, this, that's what the Lord is, is communicating here. He's giving some tough messages. He's, uh, he doesn't have time. He does not have time. If you're going to flake out, you're useless. And this gets us into chapter 15. Flaking out, prodigal son. Flake out, useless. Come back. Welcome back, <laughs> right? But when you're flaking out, forget it. 
You're out there living with the pigs and they're eating better than you are. It's a horrible way to live. We've got chapter 15 coming up and we'll come back next week uh, and deal, Lord willing, rapture pending, and uh, and teach uh, the lesson. It's interesting because it's the same lesson. Jesus gives it three times. A lost sheep, a lost coin, a lost kid, a lost son. But it's the same Bible class. It's the same reality taught in these three different parables. Thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you for our time together. Thank you for the living and abiding Word of God. And, and yes, Father, we want to grow in grace and knowledge. We want to advance in our priestly function. We want to lay up treasures in heaven. We don't want to lose sight of our, temper, of our spiritual life. But at the same time, Father, as true disciples, abiding in the Word of God, we identify with the opportunities we have to be salt and light in our communities and the privilege it is to be salt and light. Father, um, it's, uh, it's an amazing thing. I don't know, I don't believe in the history of, of, uh, uh, of, of the world. Father, has there ever been a Gentile nation to have such abundant blessings? And I don't believe there ever has been. And Father, it's a testimony to salt and light, to believers that if there's never been a country that has had better access to the Word of God and teaching ministries of the Word of God, and it's just uh, a wonderful thing, Father. If those days are drawing to a close, then uh, keep us faithful. Allow us to be the salt and light remnant. Allow us to be the Jeremiah's in our generation as we see as we see the walls come down around us. So, Father, that's in your hands too. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.